Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So I want to remind you of a story. It's a story that was told by the pastor and writer Kyle Eidelman, which you probably remember, certainly if you've read Eidelman or listened. Eidelman was moving, he and his family, and moving is never fun. He had saved, once they got into the new house, the hardest task for the end, which was moving his large office desk that was very heavy. He tells of how he began to heave and hoe and huff and puff and slowly move that across the floor and trying to get it into his office and into the right place. When his four-year-old boy walked in and saw him straining to get it done, he said, Daddy, I'll help you. So this four-year-old boy squeezed in under him, and he began to huff and to puff and to heave and to hole and to push and to shove. And they continued moving across the floor for just a few more feet until his son stopped and he said, Daddy, Daddy, you're getting in my way. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story because that story captures, that one story captures the essence of Jacob's experience today. If you remember that one story, you will remember that through which Jacob especially, but also Laban, passes. But there's one other scene that you need to have in mind as you consider Jacob's experiences today. You need to remember back 20 years in Jacob's life to that moment when he came to the place that he named Bethel, the gateway of heaven. You'll remember he was running for his life, uncertain about his future, trying to find his mother's family, feeling forsaken and abandoned by God, his brothers breathing out threats to kill him. It's a critical time in his life when he suddenly realizes, I'm in the presence of God. And it is then that God gives him a threefold promise. He says to him, Jacob, I will be with you, I will care for you, and I will bring you back home. Allow that scene also to hover over everything that happens to Jacob today. Because what happens to Jacob today is truly going to test whether or not he believes that promise uttered by God so many years before. So today's story unfolds like a drama. It's a play with four acts. Curtain rises on Act 1. We could give Act 1 the title, Do It My Way. Do It My Way. So we go to Genesis, Genesis chapter 30. I'm going to read today from the New Living Translation. The text has some places that could be murky, and the NLT does a very good job of clarifying it, making it crystal clear. So we go to Genesis 30, beginning with verse 25. Soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Please release me so I can go home to my own country. Let me take my wives and children, for I have earned them by serving you, and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I have worked for you. 
Please listen to me, Laban replied. I become wealthy, for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Tell me how much I owe you. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Jacob replied, You know how hard I've worked for you and how your flocks and herds have grown under my care. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything I've done. But now what about me? When can I start providing for my own family? What wages do you want? Laban asked again. Jacob replied, Don't give me anything. Just do this one thing, and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today and remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted, along with all the black sheep. Give these to me as my wages. In the future, when you check on the animals you have given me as my wages, you'll see that I've been honest. If you find in my flock any goats without speckles or spots or any sheep that are not black, you will know that I have stolen them from you. All right, Laban replied, it will be as you say. But that very day, Laban went out and removed the male goats that were streaked and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled or spotted or had white patches, and all the black sheep. He placed them in the care of his own sons, who took them a three-day's journey from where Jacob was. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed and cared for the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took some fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled off strips of bark making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they made it. And when they made it in front of the white streak branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated these lambs from Laban's flock, and at mating time he turned the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. Then they would mate in front of the branches. But he didn't do this with the weaker ones, so the weaker lambs belonged to Laban, and the strong ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. Do it my way. Lakeman and Jacob are both focused on themselves. They're locked, locked in a severe family conflict. It's been 20 years. Jacob's ready to go. He no doubt misses his homeland, and he no doubt remembers clearly the promise, I will bring you back to this place, back to Bethel. And so he says to Laban, it's time for me to go. He's tried this before, six years before. It's time for me to go. And Laban pressed him, pressured him, prevailed upon him to stay. Now at the 20-year mark, I'm leaving. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't go. Please stay. What do you need? You need a raise? You need some more benefits? You need a corner office? What do you need? Just tell me. I'll provide it. So Jacob comes up with a plan. He says, look, this is what we'll do. These certain kind of colors on the goats and the sheep, give these to me. Those will be mine. You take all the rest of them. That way you can see that I'm honest when you check. He already knows that Laban is suspicious. They've had enough battling along the way. Now, Jacob, to his credit, goes the extra mile because I read that that kind of coloration on sheep and goats would have been distinctly in the minority, been much a, small, a much smaller herd than what he left to Laban. 
Laban, as soon as he gets them, gets his sons, get these, go, go, three days, get out of here. He takes them all in another direction. He's once more saying, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to take care of me. Now, it's tempting right there to feel bad for Jacob. But before you feel bad for Jacob, Jacob's got his own scheme going. He does something that can best be described as a mixture of of ancient science and wisdom, ancient superstition and myth, mixed in with his own desperate desire to have his herd grow, mixed in with saying, God, please bless this mess, and it all results in a theological term called hocus pocus. That's what Jacob does. He says, okay, I'm going to strip these barks. I'm going to put these here. You, you, you lambs face in that direction. You do. It's all going to work out. I'm going to do it. I've got to do it my way. I've got to take care of me. Kind of reminds me. About eight years ago of the Super Bowl commercial. I hate TV commercials, but I like Super Bowl commercials. The one, one of them that year was a really good one. It was, it was advertising as a, a car company. I don't want to give, you know, Airtime to a car company, but it, it rhymes with Volkswagen. <laughs> so this car company is advertising their new car and their new way of starting and turning on and off and lights and all the rest. It starts with this boy in a Darth Vader costume. He's going around the house trying to use his Darth Vader powers to make things move or, or something. You're not told exactly what. He stands in front of the washing machine and tries, nothing happens. Stands in front of the dog and tries, nothing happens. Stands in front of the stationary bicycle and tries, bicycle and tries nothing happens. And you can see his disappointment. His shoulders just kind of go down, he slumps down. And then he hears the car in the driveway. His dad is home, driving a brand new Volkswagen. <laughs> he races out to see his dad. His dad jumps out thinking he's here to see me, to hug him. He moves him aside because now he's going to try his Darth Vader powers on the car. So the dad walks into the house and stands in the kitchen window with his wife and boy's mother watching. And he sees the boy standing there in front of the car and nothing happens. And then you see the dad take this, at that time, newfangled key fob and he hits it. And suddenly the lights flash and the engine comes on. And the kid looks like he's been struck by lightning. He falls back. He looks toward the house, looks back toward the car. And you can almost see inside the mask that he's thinking, I did it. I did it. Unbelievable. I finally did it. That's Jacob. I'm going to do this if I have to use whatever I have to use, but I'm going to have a flock. He's doing me a dirty deal. I'm just going to take care of me over here. I'm going to do it my way. And the curtain falls on Act 1. Do it my way. Now, I don't look so much there, but I imagine in my mind's eye looking not at that scene but above it and seeing God. There's God standing, surveying what's happening with Jacob and Laban. Stands there with a key fob in his hand, watching them trying to push that desk, start that car. Then he looks up and realizes you're looking at him. And God kind of winks at you. Did you see that? They think they're doing it. Isn't that cute? (laughs) They think they're the ones in control. (laughs) But then he looks at you. 
as though to say, don't judge. Don't get uppity. And you suddenly realize he's thinking of that place in your life where you've been fighting, demanding, it's my way, I'll get it done. No matter what I have to do, I'm going to overcome this person. And you have a sense that God knows that. Standing there with the key fob. And the curtain rises on Act 2. The title, No, I'll Do It My Own Way. So we go back to Genesis. This time to Genesis 31, starting with verse 1. But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He has gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. Does that sound familiar from Bethel? So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I've noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I work for your father, but he has cheated me, changing my wages ten times. But God does not allow him to do me any harm. For if he said the speckled animals will be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said the striped animals will be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. And then we skip down to verse 14. Rachel and Leah responded, that's fine with us. We won't inherit any of our father's wealth anyway. He has reduced our rights to those of foreign women. And after he sold us, he wasted the money you paid him for us. All the wealth God has given you from our father legally belongs to us and our children. So go ahead and do whatever God has told you. So Jacob put his wives and children on camels, and he drove all his livestock in front of them. He packed all the belongings he had acquired in Paddan Aram and set out for the land of Canaan where his father Isaac lived. At, that, at the time they left, Laban was some distance away shearing his sheep. Rachel stole her father's idols, household idols, and took them with her. Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean, for they set out secretly and never told Laban they were leaving. So Jacob took all his possessions with him and crossed the Euphrates River, heading for the hill country of Gilead. And so Jacob says to his wives, come out here. And they go out to the fields. You shh, keep this quiet. We got to get out of here. Your father's demanding that I do it his way, but you know how he cheats me. I've been fighting to get it done my way. That's a problem. Well, I'm going to do it my way. I've got to leave. I've got to go. And they say to him, lead the way. We're right behind you. Even his own daughters are tired of Laban's antics. You see, there was a custom at the time that when a father was paid a bride price for his daughter to keep either all or some of that, if you will, in trust so that if something happened to the husband, he died, he left, he divorced her, she would now have something from which to live. Not with Laban. His daughters say he spent it all on himself. And make no mistake about it, it was a large amount, 14 years of wages. Spend it all on himself. Only one he's interested in is himself. You can understand why they are locked in this family battle. So, yeah, you want to go? We're behind you. Let's go. So Jacob did something unthinkable in his culture. Now, we would think it was a bit odd, too, wouldn't we? If we had somebody come and stay with us, 
family, friend, come and stay with us, spend a couple of days, and then we wake up one morning, didn't know they were going, and, and, and everything's gone. Where did they go? Where are their suitcases? Where's their car? They're gone. What, what did we do? That's what he did, but it would have been much more jarring in that culture. He said, I'm going to do it my own way, and I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to be a part of this fight any longer. And then the narrator adds a little line. It catches our attention. In fact, it speaks of something to come. He says, and Rachel stole her father's household idols. These would have been little figures. Many of them have been recovered by archaeologists. There were superstitions about them. Why did Rachel steal them? Was she wanting a tie with home? Was she believing in the superstition that said, if you take them with you, they'll give you a good journey? Was she trying to take one last swipe at her father for the way he had treated her and her husband? We don't know exactly why. But we do know that that sets up the final confrontation. And the curtain falls on Act 2. No, I'll do it my own way. After we've watched the act with the curtain down, we look up again at God. And God stands watching, key fob in hand, watching as Jacob's actions say, I will pull, push this desk all the way to Bethel if I have to, and my wives will help me do it. I'm going to get it done my own way rather than standing with faith and courage and saying, God is with me, and God will take me through any conflict. And God watches. Sees you watching, and he winks. Let's you in on the secret. Jacob thinks he's pushing that desk. Isn't that cute? And the curtain rises on Act 3. Title of the act? then I'll hurt you. Do it my way? No, I'll do it my own way. Really? Then I'll hurt you. We go back to Genesis 31, verse 22, three days later. Laban was told that Jacob had fled, so he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night, God had appeared to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he was camped in the hill country of Gilead, and he set up his own camp not far from Jacob's. What do you mean by deceiving me like this, Laban demanded? How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you slip away secretly? Why did you deceive me? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have given you a farewell feast with singing and music accompanied by tambourines and harps. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and grandchildren and tell them goodbye? You've acted very foolishly. I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. I can understand your feeling that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home, but why have you stolen my gods? How many whys in those words? Why, why, why? I trusted, I rushed away rather, because I was afraid, Jacob answered. I thought you would take your daughters away by force. 
But as for your God, see if you can find them, and let the person who has taken them die. And if you find anything else that belongs to you, identify it before all these relatives of ours, and I will give it back. But Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the household gods. Laban's attitude says, I'm going to hurt him. I'm going to destroy him. You saw that, verse 29, the first words, I could destroy you. Sounds like Tom Brady talking to the Dallas Cowboys. I could destroy you if I wanted to. <laughs> He's coming after him, intent on getting his pound of flesh. Just imagine what that journey has been like. It's about 400 miles from where Laban was to where Jacob was camped. It's a long journey. A lot of dry desert between the two gives Laban a lot of time for pondering and for thinking just exactly what he's going to do when he catches Jacob. He's focused. He's intense. He says it. I could destroy you. And the night before, God steps in. And he just says, Laban, I'm warning you. Leave Jacob alone. Dial it back. Ease off the accelerator. When God has to step in and say, you leave him alone, you know there aren't good things on his mind. But when he does catch him, he launches into this diatribe. Did you notice how many times he said why? Why, 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 why? Explain yourself. He's still angry. Why'd you do that to me? And then he has the audacity to say, Come on, son-in-law. If you'd have hung around and just said, I want to go, I'd have thrown you a party. We would have had music and song and dancing and food. I would have kissed her. It would have been a beautiful occasion. Bittersweet, yes, but beautiful. Don't you believe it for a minute. Total fabrication. Everything about Laban up to this point says there's no way he was letting his gravy train to wealth get away from him. But he's been backed into a corner. Doesn't know what to do. So he becomes kind of like that person who's losing an argument and is now looking for anything, anything to grab nearby that they can throw in, any possible way to get the other person back. And sometimes those attempts are pretty weak. After a huge fight, the person says, yeah, but you were, you were seven minutes late. What? After all this? Well, Laban does that. He says, after all of his whys, and finally, what would you take my household gods for? That's what I'm here after anyway. Now it's Jacob's turn. Jacob says, look, Laban, I did, I did no such thing. I haven't touched your stuff. Everything you see here is mine. I, in, fact, in fact, if anybody here has those household gods, we'll, we'll kill them. They should die. And right there I want to say to Jacob, whoa, 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 back off. Don't let this argument escalate. I mean, for someone who's done as many underhanded things as you've done, you ought to know that people in your family just might do the same thing. Don't, don't be talking about killing people. Jacob says, search. See if you can find them. Genesis 31, 33, Laban went first into Jacob's tent to search there, and then into Leah's, 
And then the, <clears throat> pardon me, the tents of the servant wives, but he found nothing. Finally, he went into Rachel's tent. But Rachel had taken the household idols and hidden them in her camel saddle, and now she was sitting on them. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, Please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you. I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search, but he could not find the household idols. Now, we read that and we laugh. But let me tell you, two commentaries will give you the full impact of how Rachel's statement would have hit Laban. Here's the first one. Rachel's excuse that she had her period would have been sufficient to warn off Laban for in the ancient world a woman in menstruation was considered a danger because menstrual blood was widely believed to be a habitat for demons. <laughs> Watch out, Dad. It's that... And he backs away. Second commentary. Ancient Israelites would have sensed how strongly the narrative scorns these idols, since for them, everything that came in contact with a woman during her period became polluted. Rachel, in feigning menstruation, was in actuality ridiculing these gods, treating them as worthless. The eminent Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad points out that the determined way that the mighty Laban searched for his powerless images makes him look like a buffoon. To a monotheist, this scene is rich in irony. Is that what you're looking for? Did you want to look? No, 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 no. That's, that's quite all right. He emerges from the tent, and I can just see Lake Jacob saying, So Laban, how you feeling? You don't look so good. It's a difficult situation, a conflict that will not end. And now we come to the peak of it, because Jacob has had enough. He is sick and tired of the fighting. He's sick and tired of the arguing. He's sick and tired of the power plays, of the do it my way. No, then I'll do it my own way, and then I'm going to hurt you. He's tired of all of that. And so finally, he lets loose with a speech that I'm going to read to you. It's several verses long. I'm going to read it in its entirety and try to read it in the way that I suspect he would have spoken it. But if you're going to listen, you've got to listen in your mind's eye looking at Jacob with that vein in his forehead about to pop, with the veins in his neck throbbing. Listen to what he says next. Genesis 31, verse 36. Then Jacob became very angry. And he challenged Laban. What's my crime, he demanded. What have I done to make you chase after me as though I were a criminal? You've rummaged through everything I own. Now show me what you found that belongs to you. Set it out here in front of us before our relatives for all to see. Let them judge between us. For 20 years I've been with you, caring for your flocks. In all that time, your sheep and goats have never miscarried. In all those years, I never used a single ram of yours for food. If any were attacked and killed by wild animals, I never showed you the carcass and asked you to reduce the count of your flock. No, I took the loss myself. You made me pay for every stolen animal, whether it was taken in the broad daylight or in the dark of night. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day and through cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years I slaved in your house. I worked for 14 years earning your two daughters and then 
six more years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. In fact, if the God of my father had not been by my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. Whew. Mercy. Jacob is ticked. He's unloading it all. All the bile, all the vitriol, all the anger that has built up over 20 years of being mistreated. I have had it. You trying to hurt me. So you listen to me even if it hurts you. And he lays it all out. Now there are certain moments when somebody gives a speech like that where there is no response. I mean, what are you going to say to that? It's like, whoa. But Laban has a response. It's much shorter, but I'm going to read it to you as well. And I want you to notice that Laban's heart has not changed at all. I want you to notice that by paying attention to two words. Notice how he uses the word my and the word mine. So here comes Laban's speech, verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, These women are my daughters. These children are my grandchildren. These flocks are my flocks. In fact, everything you see is mine. But what can I do now about my daughters and their children? What can I do? I've been backed into a corner. My daughters don't want to be with me. My grandchildren are attached to their mothers. I was going to get my flocks and herds back, but God warned me off. And my son-in-law can't wait to get away from me. What am I going to do? But just so you get it clearly, all this is mine, not yours, mine. And the curtain falls. On the third act, no, I'll do it my way. And I look at God, and I think this is what I hear God say. I think he's not talking to Jacob and Laban. He's talking to you and me. But he's inviting us to observe what just happened. I think God might say, in a broken world, sin-sick world, friendship-fractured, relationship-ruptured world. There are some problems in families, in marriages, in friendships that are simply intractable. You can't fix them. You can fight all day long, and they'll never get fixed. You can come to the epitome of the greatest argument, and as soon as you're done, the other person says, yeah, it's all mine. What do you have left after that? There are some problems that just can't get fixed. So you have to make a decision. Are you going to continue to fight? Or are you going to set up a mizpagate. The curtain rises on the final act, Act 4. 
we could title Act 4, Let's Agree to Disagree. Mizpah. Now, the Mizpah, that's very touching, isn't it? I have heard it year after year, sung from this platform by Loma Linda Academy, by the choirs that come and perform at the end of the year. And one of the songs they have performed time and again is the song, the Mizpah song, May the Lord Watch Between You and Me While We Are Absent One from Another. It's beautiful. And I've sat here year after year and just felt the bittersweet nostalgia here are these kids. They're about to part, go separate ways, colleges across this land and others. Who knows when they'll see each other again, and they're saying, God, take care of us, please, to bring us back together in safety. That's the Mizpah. Except that that's not the Mizpah. It's a part of it. It's embedded in there. But there's much more to it than that. And you'll pick it up in a moment when we read the verses. Because the Mizpah is the setting up of a boundary. A boundary that says, neither one of, of us will cross this to hurt the other one. We're done with our fighting. We're done with, it's my way, and then, oh, no, 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 it's my way, and then, okay, then I'm going to hurt you. We're done with that. We're going to set up a boundary, a monument that says, even if we can't fix the problem, we're not going to hurt each other anymore. Now, what's curious as we read these verses, just notice a careful reading, and some of this requires a bit of knowledge of the Hebrew, the scholars tell us, but a careful reading will reveal a number of twos, two monuments, two names, two gods, two languages. They can't even agree on how they're going to set this up. They each have their own side of it. Well, they're trying to set up the Mizpah gate. So notice the verses. Beginning now with verse 44, Laban is still speaking. So come, let's make a covenant, you and I, and it will be a witness to our commitment. Commitment to what? That comes next. So Jacob took a stone, set it up as a monument. Then he told his family members, gather some stones. So they gathered stones and piled them in a heap. Then Jacob and Laban sat down beside the pile of stones to eat a covenant meal. To commemorate the event, Laban called the place Jager Sahadutha, which means witness pile in Aramaic. And Jacob called it Galid, which means witness pile in Hebrew. Can't even agree on who's going to call it what. Then Laban declared, this pile of stones will stand as a witness to remind us of the covenant we have made today. This explains why it was called Galid, witness pile, but it was also called Mizpah, which means watchtower. Would you agree on a name? For Laban said, may the Lord keep watch between us to make sure that we keep this covenant when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters or if you marry other wives, God will see it even if no one else does. He is a witness to this covenant between us. See this pile of stones, Laban continued, and see this monument I have set between us. They stand between us as witnesses of our vows. I will never pass this pile of stones to harm you, and you must never pass these stones or this monument to harm me. I call on the God of our ancestors, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of my grandfather Nahor to serve as judge between us. 
So Jacob took an oath before the fearsome God of his father Isaac to respect the boundary line. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God there on the mountain and invited everyone to a covenant feast. After they had eaten, they spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early the next morning and he kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. We can't get along. We can't agree. We continue to fight. So let's just agree to disagree and to stop hurting each other. There's still distance. In fact, listen to this brief statement from John Hartley, Old Testament scholar writing on this moment. He says, The kiss of kinship frames Jacob's stay with his uncle. At the beginning, Jacob kissed Rachel, and Laban welcomed him with a kiss. Years later, however, when Jacob and Laban separated never to meet again, Laban kissed his grandchildren and daughters, but he did not kiss Jacob, evidence of the distance between them. Curtain falls. Act 4. Let's agree to disagree. Let's just realize that all of our fighting, all of our continual trying to push that desk where we think it should go, all of the things that we try to get the car running, everything that we attempt to say to make God take our side and to give us what we think God should give us, all of that, we'll let it go. We'll remember the promise, at least Jacob will. God said... I'll go with you, I'll care for you, and I'll bring you home. Sometimes it's just more peaceful to trust than to fight. So I look, not, not at the scene of Jacob and Laban avoiding kissing each other. I look at the scene of God. God above there. Stands there with a key fob in his hand. And he's looking at you. And he chuckles. And he makes reference to that fight you're engaged in. Demanding your rights. Demanding that you need what only God can give you. He chuckles. He looks at you and he says, you know, I complete what I start I give what I promise. Looks at the key fob and says, So relax. I got it. <laughs>